Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University, and currently a visiting fellow with the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at Hong Kong University. And we're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World and the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. This week marks the 30th anniversary of the deadly crackdown in 1989 that left hundreds, maybe thousands, dead in Beijing and Chengdu. We're going to bring you voices from the heart of the student movement, looking back and looking forward. We'll be looking at new material that surfaced, as well as discussing the impact of Beijing's attempts to erase the collective memory of what happened and how that changes the dynamic of remembering. To explore these questions, Louisa has been talking to two key student leaders: Wang Dan, who was number one on the list of 21 most wanted students, and Zhou Fengshuo, who was number five on the same list. She's also joined by publisher Bao Pu, who's just issued a book called *The Last Secret*, as well as Joseph Turigian from American University. Louisa, is there anything new to say after so long? Well, Graham, it's really interesting. Bao Pu, who's the son of Bao Tong, who was Zhao Ziyang's right-hand man, he's just put out this new book called *The Last Secret*, and it's really a collection of party documents about the meetings that happened after the killings, as well as an essay that brings in all kinds of new material that's surfaced in recent years. It's material like Li Peng's diaries, Zhao Ziyang's memoir. And works by his advisers Wu Wei and Wu Guoguang, and it's looking, I think, at the mechanics of how the decision making happened at the highest level of the party, and it sort of offers this really fascinating insight into power in China and how power works. When I met Bao Pu just the other day in Hong Kong, I started by asking him, "Well, what what is actually new in all this material?" I think after the、um, Tiananmen crackdown, many people、uh, have you know recollections, and、uh, many people tried to seek for the、uh, this historical truth. And I think you know only if we uncover these records, only after study these, we can actually get closer to the truth. So you have the previously secret records of this enlarged Politburo meeting that happened two weeks after the killings. I mean, what did people say in those meetings that we didn't know about before? These meetings were actually、uh, turned out to be a surprise to me as a as a reader,、uh, because my impression is, if this is a, a Politburo expanded、uh, meeting. Uh, supposed to draw a conclusion to the June Fourth crackdown, there must be some kind of、uh, by conventional wisdom. You know, you you would expect you know they there will be evidence, be discussed. There will be you know like even even though it's an internal conference, there will be a lot of talk about what was going on. But none of these happened, and what you see is a whole bunch of. High officials pledging、uh, their loyalty to Deng Xiaoping, and also there's a, a uniformity. Uh, uh, you know, almost every everyone agreed to remove General Secretary, even though they know it's actually against you know the procedure. 
And Hu Yaobang had the case of Hu Yaobang has already demonstrated. You know, they didn't remove Hu Yaobang according to the proper procedure. So there is a, a bitter feeling left, and exploded uh, in uh, upon his death. So they have not l uh, learned that lesson. So th and they did it again. And it's, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, just how kind of quickly and thoroughly Zhao Ziyang's allies turned on him in that meeting, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. There's only way out if you want to uh, preserve your political career, and that is to obey Deng Xiaoping. And um, despite evidence, despite truth, despite how many people, you know, people's lives, they're not, they're not concerned about this. I mean, this is the truth, you know, that actually I want the general uh, audience get, is that when the Communist Party make important decisions, the most important thing is to obey number one. And, and all the other things, what kind of cost the people will pay for it, it doesn't even matter. So was party procedure ever discussed at this meeting? Uh, no. Nobody actually even cared. That's the point. Like according to, in the uh, ten years ago, I published, you know, Zhao Ziyang's memoir. Zhao Ziyang stated the reason they have to go through these documents to be put in the uh, final Zhongyang Quanhui, which is you know the uh, the party congress, is is because they want to go through the procedure. But even though you know they've already removed you know the general secretary from power um, uh, as early as you know May uh, May 17, and the procedure was just uh, you know a showcase. That's all. It's actually interesting, isn't it, to think about them as a companion piece to Zhao Ziyang's uh, memoir because he was really obsessed by procedure, wasn't he? He kept saying, he kept bringing it up, and I guess that will be why. When he was you know in that position, you know he's been removed from power and when he had, uh, made uh, make a, a, a recollection I think he made a very important point is because the uh, it, it wasn't you know the procedure was not followed and therefore it's not legal but the fact is you know in Chinese politics legal is the least thing you know that on on these you know top leaders mind and that's exactly you know, the, the, the problem was he highlighted this illegality. And I, I think for the future, you know, when people think about it, you know, oh, hold, that decision was totally wrong and illegal. It was interesting that Boy Bo, during that meeting, he talked about the use, the utility of dictatorship, didn't he? He said, um, dictatorship has its tools. It's not just lip service or something propped up to admire. It's there to be used. Does this illuminate the state of mind of, of the Communist Party leaders, do you think? Um, absolutely. Uh, this is not, uh, this is Boy Bo mimic Deng Xiaoping. Because Deng Xiaoping said it in December of 1986, and he said it in the context of uh, of uh, the uh, student protests at the end of 1986, uh, and also he he made reference to the Polish Communist Party crackdown on solidarities in 1981. They they declared martial law, 
and Deng Xiaoping thought it was a, really the right thing to do, and also he admired. So he said, you know, something like that. So in that meeting, I think Bo Yibo just repeating what Deng Xiaoping said before, and I think that's the、uh, the one thing that's sticking out during this、uh, Politburo expanded、uh, meeting that everybody is using Deng Xiaoping's words, repeating Deng Xiaoping's you know wishes. To to pledge their their loyalty. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's just like it's basically a loyalty meeting.、Uh, absolutely, those、uh, high-level senior officers were required to make a verbal or written speech to re-pledge their loyalty. But you know, when the Party Congress happened, there's a、uh, 489, according to the official records,、uh, people participated. They were just only given a chance to study the speeches made at the at the expanded parliamentary meeting, and they they didn't even have the choice even to discuss it. And but they have the、uh, they have to raise their hand to approve. So the other thing that、um, has surfaced in recent days is this open letter signed by seven generals、um, expressing、right. their opposition at the crackdown. I mean, we knew before that there was opposition from people like Xu Qinxian, but does this give us a better idea of the kind of threat that was felt by Deng? Or、uh, I mean, how significant do you think that is? It's absolutely significant, you know. So it signified the、um, the party's whole apparatus was actually put into a test、uh, because you know th- th- they're confronted by a huge issue. Right and wrong, they have to make a choices. And、uh, at at that time, you know, even the army general has to make choices of what's right and wrong. So they end up, despite the the seven uh, uh, generals' letter, the PLA, you know, executed, you know,、uh, Deng Xiaoping's order anyway. So this Communist Party stands the test. They cited to the leader, Communist leader, and not the people. But I mean, Xu Qinxian ended up serving. As,、uh, he had he got a five-year sentence. But those seven generals did they get demoted as well? Does anyone know what happened to them? Well,、uh, they were just、uh, ignored. At that time, most of them were retired. They're so senior, and、uh, they're part of the、um, the symbol of the Chinese Revolution. So if you remove them and you move the party's, you know, total. Legitimacy, and、uh, so、uh, I, I think the party chose, you know, to to you know ignore them, and they actually disappeared from public life ever since as well.、Um, the other thing which was really noticeable in the documents is this sort of total paranoia about hostile foreign forces and the role that they played in、um, the Tiananmen movement. I mean, how important do you think that kind of tone is when we look at China today? Right. The, the, okay. This is you know exactly the China hasn't changed because the prescription of the ills for China, you know,、uh, in the view of these leaders, remain as you know、uh, foreign forces try to subvert、um, its power. That diagnosis has never been true. However, they stick to it. I don't think it has more to do with the truth, 
but it has something to do with I mean rhetoric that they need for propaganda purposes. But in taking that explanation, it also gave them um, an opportunity to ignore some of the structural and deeper problems raised by the students, right? Well, the thing is, you know, you uh, after a, a major thing, major event happened, you would expect they would discuss some evidence, they would dis- discuss some strategies to deal with the future. It, you know, the, these sets of documents shows that they didn't didn't do none of these I mean none of these happened um, it shows that they stuck their own mode of the thinking but however you know given you know in the hindsight you know given what happened to Soviet Union and the uh, Eastern Europe uh, the Communist Party um, of China basically stick to to its core process the core process is this is the ultimate secret, is whenever uh, things happened, one man in charge, and despite the truth, despite everything else, and this makes them stays in power, however, at the expense of the people. Uh, and that is really, you know, the, the kind of a message I want people get through my book, through my latest book, The Last Secret, meaning two meanings there's a um this these are are the last sets of documents on june 4th that the party produced and the uh the other meaning is that the the ultimate secret is is that you know it doesn't matter people's life to these uh, to these leaders uh, leaders at that moment and and next time when they decide you know, because that process kind of uh, stay intact today, and doesn't matter. You know, if you have a trade war or other things or hard war, you know, in the future, you know, the people will pay for their decision, and their decision is often not based on facts. And this is my final question. It's one from my co-host Graham. Um, he said to ask you what do these documents tell us about the way that the party operates? Is it really that different from imperial times with Deng as the emperor and the other members of the Politburo as a kind of coterie of courtiers and eunuchs surrounding him? Um, there's significant differences. What, uh, one is that you know the legitimacy problem is, is not there in the imperial system. Because that's totally legitimate. Because it's uh, it's based on tradition. One of the traditional Max Weber kind of uh, you know uh, legitimacy. But the party supposed to based on their legitimacy on rational legal model, and the party had a constitution, and they they claim China is the country of you know rule of law, but. But in the end, you know, when this kind of you know event happens, and then you see, and this do- this sense of document appears, then you see the true process of the party, and uh, this actually brings a lot, highlight a lot about the, this legitimacy question, like who are they? Why are they making these decisions? Um, so that's the, that is the major differences. I've also been really lucky that I've 
bumped into the world's fastest reader of Chinese documents, Joseph Tarigian from the American University in Washington, D.C., who is an expert in Chinese elite politics. And he has read the entire book uh, in analyzed it within a space of about 15 hours. Is that right? 15 hours? Um, and I asked him what was new and notable that we could learn from, the, from this book. Uh, up until Deng Xiaoping uh, made up his mind about what direction he wanted things to go, a lot of them had expressed support for Zhao Ziyang. Even after Deng made up his mind, sentimentally, they were still in favor of, of Zhao's program. So I think that we need to be very careful that at meetings like this, which are intended to have everyone express support for a decision that's already been made, we shouldn't misinterpret those statements to be what they were thinking at the time before the decision was made. I think that's very important. So you have already read the, all the documents in the book, and you study this period. So I mean, for you, what did you think was the most kind of interesting and valuable thing that we could take from it as readers um, and as someone who studied the period quite closely? So there are no shocking new details, but the book is important for the fact that it corroborates other sources of evidence, it adds new wrinkles, and there are a couple things that we didn't know before but that are still significant. Uh, one thing that's very interesting is there are a lot more details on the position of Zhao Ziyang before June 4th, which is crucial for understanding how people were interpreting his actions, because uh, the nature of where reform was and the nature of Zhao's authority, uh, all of those were tied up ultimately with the way that things turned out. Uh, it's also very interesting to see that lots of people were complaining about the lack of institutionalization and the lack of collective leadership with regards to how Zhao Ziyang was behaving. So once again, this is another important piece of evidence that contradicts the earlier interpretation of the Dung era as one of institutionalization. We see that even liberal individuals uh, who had similar positions um, to Zhao Ziyang providing very specific cases of where they believed that Zhao was behaving in a way of using his relationship with Deng to squash any real um, discussion of policy. Another very interesting piece of evidence is uh, uh, more details on the letter that was sent to Wanli, who was in charge of the People's Legislature while he was in the United States. We already knew that he had gotten two letters, one from the National People's Congress telling him to come back, and another from Li Peng and others telling him to stay in the United States. But what's interesting is that this particular document says the letter to uh, Wan was written by the party organization within the NPC. Xi Zhongxun, Xi Jinping's father, was a member of that organization, so it's interesting to wonder whether or not he might have been somehow involved, although that's, uh, that's pure conjecture. Uh, also new details on how the public security ministry uh, was having had a very, very close eye on Zhao Ziyang and a lot of his advisors. Uh, lots of new details on what the public security ministry thought they knew about Zhao Ziyang's relationship with George Soros. I think that's also very interesting uh, and important. Uh, also, we have evidence that Bo Yibo was sick for the eight or nine months up until Tiananmen, which raises questions about whether or not he was really involved in the way that the Tiananmen papers uh, were suggesting. 
uh, it's interesting to see that even though lots of people who were very skeptical about uh, reform and blame Zhao on reform still prefaced all of their remarks by affirming reform and opening up and only went so far in criticizing Zhao because of an understanding that it would affect Deng as well. Um, also, Hu Qi Li, who has always been a very interesting character because uh, of different reports on exactly how he behaved at the key meeting on May 17th at Deng's home. Uh, his account in, in, in that particular collection of documents is that uh, he uh, expressed support for the organization's decision, but also um, uh, kept his own uh, you know, uh, thinking without changing it, even though he accepted the decision, which is different from the Tianmen papers and Li Peng's memoirs and Zhao's memoirs. So that's another threat as to what might have happened. And those are, there are a few other things, but those are the things that come to mind. That was Joseph Turigian of American University, an analyst of Russian, North Korean and Chinese politics, whose ability to speed read Chinese frankly puts me to shame. Louisa, let's talk about some of the student leaders that you've met. Yeah, so I've been um, doing speaking events in various places. I did a, uh, My book came out in Chinese, so I did a book launch in Taiwan, and I did some speaking events at American universities. And while I was in the U.S., um, I met Joe Fongsuo, who, as I said, was the number five student leader in 1989 and has since then set up. He went into exile. He set up this organization called Humanitarian China. When I met him in New York last month, he told me about new evidence that had recently surfaced. And this shows much deeper opposition among army generals to the crackdown than was previously known. So I asked him to tell me what was so significant about this new material. This supported my intuition that the army was not really completely behind Deng's plan of killing students. What we have found recently, last couple of years, was some concrete evidence that there was widespread objection to martial law and in the to shooting people. That's widespread objection amongst the army itself? Yes, within the army. So when I was on Tianmen, there were many soldiers who came to us every day because I was running the broadcasting station, which was basically the command center. People just came to us for all kinds of reasons because that's where they hear the voice. And... uh, there were many soldiers. Later, I met more and more former soldiers or officials mm-hmm. from the troops, and some of them were in Beijing there. So why is that significant? Uh, it just showed how strong the support for the students and for freedom and democracy was in China at that time, even in the military. And it also proves that Deng was a minority. Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping, even though he was in control, but the margin was not that strong. So he was really acting in fear, out of fear. And he was paranoid because of this. He knew he was in a minority in terms of public opinion, even within the military. That, in a way, also may explain 
the brutal force just simply because of his insecurity. That was Zhou Fengso, a former student leader. Louisa, you've written about a relentless campaign to force amnesia about the killings onto the Chinese people. What are some of the more interesting efforts you've seen to encourage people to remember? Well, it's interesting. I just came back from Taiwan where there's been uh, all kinds of events that have been organized in Taipei this year. Um, and actually, uh, Zhou Fengsuo and some of the other student leaders were at them. And these included um, an exhibition at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, this very, uh, a play sort of reenacting the last moments of the student movement, and then this very kind of peculiar artistic performance uh, in, in the, inside the sort of Memorial Square in Taipei where there were all these uh, actors sort of... I don't even know how to describe it. They were wearing flesh-coloured bodysuits, so they looked like they were naked and they were sort of um, uh, sort of processing really slowly, crawling, rolling across the square, uh, being carried at some point, uh, silently howling. It was uh, an interesting uh, moment. I, I think there was also this massive inflatable tank man artistic installation in front of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial building. So this was sort of this gigantic blow-up tank and this gigantic blow-up tank man. And that was particularly interesting because there's so many mainland tourists in Taiwan. There's about 2.5 million mainland tourists went to Taiwan last year. So you see a lot of mainlanders kind of, you know, taking pictures or looking at it, wondering what it is. And a lot of them, um, you know, look quite dumbfounded. I tried to talk to a couple of them to ask them how they felt about this, this inflatable tank man. Uh, some chose to remain silent. Others were just confused. Oh, well, you can't see this in China, right? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> is, definitely it, not. is it good to be reminded of it? Mm, really depends. Mm. Really depends. Is it surprising? Do you are you surprised? Oh you... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I was so. Sort of, no, I'm not surprised. I'm surprised here. You know that a couple of people was dancing there. Right, right, right. There's all kinds of um, all kinds of different performances yeah, yeah, to remember. Yeah. I think they reacted to this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, do you think it's good to remember what happened in Tiananmen Square? Uh, for me, it's too far. You know, I was too young <laughs> the day. You know. How old are you now? Sixty. Just 60. over sixty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> too old. <laughs> too old. But do you think one day these the, in China you'll be able to remember like this? Yes, it's, it's, it's a big picture. It's not a me to, to judge it for this picture. You know? Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. You've written a lot about the success of the campaign to erase these collective memories, but I think this is the first time we've heard about an inflatable tank man. Um, will these kind of campaigns make any difference? It's really hard to tell. I mean, I think the fact is we are seeing a lot more Chinese overseas. You know, let's not forget there's 660,000 young Chinese studying in academic institutions overseas. 
And, you know, some of them will go away and do some research and may find out what happened. Um, so that might, over time, begin to uh, bring the collective memory back to those who perhaps had never known what happened. Um, having these b sort of made-for-social-media things like the, like the inflatable tank man probably make the act of remembering more attractive to young people, particularly, you know, young Taiwanese who are very keen on social media. But one thing that I noticed that I thought was really interesting was about the media coverage in Taiwan. So as well as all these commemorative events, there was also a meeting between President Tsai Ing-wen and a whole bunch of the student leaders from 1989. And it's quite notable that all of these things were only covered by one of the four main broadsheet newspapers in Taiwan. And one of the reasons for that is about media ownership. Uh, some of the others have been bought up by Chinese institutions. So for example, you know those snowflake biscuits, the Wang Wang Ji Tuan, Wan Wan makes that you always oh, eat yeah, on they're, they're delicious. Yeah. Well, the Wan Wan Corporation has actually bought up one of the Taiwanese newspapers and runs it. And there's been a shift, a very noticeable shift in their coverage. And there's been a, a fair amount of academic research that has actually quantified how their editorial line has changed after this shift in ownership. So I think the fact that these commemorative events were not reported in many of the Taiwanese newspapers, it is significant because it shows how media ownership and the increasing sort of um, reach of China's economic power is serving to silence some of the coverage that you might otherwise get in the press overseas. I mean, yeah, not just in Taiwan, but here in Australia, uh, John Fitzgerald did some research on the 25th anniversary, and he found that most of the Chinese language newspapers here uh, made no mention at all of the killings. Yeah, so I mean, I, I also have the same question about whether the collective memory of Tiananmen can survive given the amount of effort that the Chinese state has put into suppressing that memory. And that's something that I asked the former student leader, Joe Fongsuo, when I saw him in New York. It's a hard battle. I can only say we have to fight really hard to keep it. Uh, of course, I'm confident that we will, but uh, how tedious the work and uh, how hard it will be, I think it will definitely become harder because the communist China has manipulated the global capitalist system so that this system works for the communists to erase the memory of Tiananmen uh, and it actually makes easier for them to erase this memory because of people's reliance on digital technology. For example, they own the photo storage archive. Getty image, mm -hmm. it's probably there's some Chinese ownership or majority ownership in it. And it's possible in the future, you know, they may just remove these pictures. Uh, That's the archive that can, has the tank man picture, right? I think so. That's the biggest uh, archive of photos out there. I mean, just I'm just giving this as an example. Oh, I see. So you're saying not that they could remove the 
Tankman picture, but all pictures regarding right. June the 4th could conceivably, possibly, at some point in the future, be removed from circulation. Because now it's so centralized, they can easily do this from Beijing. You know, they can control the global memory of this. When the anniversary comes around and it's the 5th, the 10th, the 15th, all these years have passed and there is no movement by the Chinese government, does it feel hopeless? It does, if we want to look at the, re- the result. But on the other hand, I'm also very proud of myself, of uh, sticking true to my position, to my uh, heart through all these years with everything so manipulated by the communist China, you know, even in the United States. For example, my social media account, you know, my, my uh, LinkedIn account was censored earlier this year simply for what I posted. Your LinkedIn account was censored no. even though you opened it in the US. Right. <laughs> yes. What did you post? I was just posting what I'm do- doing now. I'm, I'm president of Humanitarian China, so I post uh, my activity, you know, what we are doing. I, uh, I want to raise people's awareness uh, to the issues. And uh, uh, it was uh, censored. Because I know that a, a few years ago, LinkedIn censored people who had posted um, Tiananmen stories... And it said the reason that it censored them was because it wanted to deliver value to the shareholders. What reason did they give you? They didn't really give a reason, and uh, they restored my account Mm -hmm. very quickly, Mm -hmm. uh, blaming it on a technical error. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you've paid a personal price? Of course, every day uh, I'm paying the price. My life completely changed by Tiananmen, and most people gave up. Uh, even in the United States, uh, it's an inconvenience in your daily life, daily, daily business. Even people who were protesters, who were prisoners, you have to follow the flow. So for me, I'm staying true. I'm not changing. When you think back now, is there a particular moment that you think back to? Yeah, the moment when I left Tiananmen. This was in the morning of June 4. We were forced to leave by troops. So they have guns behind us and tanks just about 10 feet from where I was. And the uh, daylight was breaking. People were crying. So I look back. I, I said, we are going to come back. That's my wish. I'm always looking back to that moment. I hope in my lifetime I will have this opportunity. That was Zhou Feng Suo, the fifth most wanted student leader in 1989. Now, I understand you've just come back from the US. You spent a lot of time with Wang Dan, who was number one on the Beijing police's wanted list in 89. He spent quite some time in prison after Tiananmen and ended up leaving to the US. He's now based in Taiwan. Um, But my question is, is he still relevant to Chinese people and to Chinese students in the US even know who he is? 
Surprisingly, yes, they do. And yes, he does appear to be relevant. I did a couple of panels with him, uh, one in Wisconsin-Madison and one in Harvard. And it was really um, noticeable how many Chinese students came. All the talks that we did together were absolutely full. People were, you know, all the chairs were full. People were sitting in the aisles. People were sitting on the floor. And um, they were most interested uh, in Wang Dan. They, they, especially the mainland students, they had a lot of questions for him, a lot of questions about decisions that the students had made. And, um, you know, he's he's very interesting speaker. He's very funny as well. You know, he told all these anecdotes about how, you know, at the time a student you know, students were so apolitical that he himself was actually uh, learning how to break dance. <laughs> <laughs> As many others did in the 80s, to be fair. <laughs> uh, and, and stuff like this. And I mean, you know, after every talk, he was kind of mobbed by students and he would end up going out to talk with them. Um, and when I talked to him, I was all, also curious to hear what his standout memory was of the weeks of protest. And his answer it actually wasn't quite what I was expecting. April 27, 1989 was a very important day because on April 26, the government published an editorial calling our movement turmoil. Their intent was to stop us from protesting or expressing our desires. The result was that on the 27th, almost all the university students came out to protest. In 1949, when Mao Zedong stood at Tiananmen and declared the establishment of the People's Republic of China, he said, the Chinese people have stood up. But after that, we saw they didn't really stand up. But on April 27, 1989, this was the first time that ordinary people spontaneously took to the streets to demonstrate. They weren't organized by the state. This was absolutely the first time, and it was a protest that ran counter to the will of the state. As I see it, that's really standing up. So April 27th was a really important day in the history of the People's Republic of China, the day that the people stood up. But afterwards, they were suppressed. Do you remember what you yourself were doing? That day, I was leading the protest, and we got to Jianguomen flyover. That's a very high bridge, and from there you can see the whole of Chang'an Avenue. I remember seeing how wide Chang'an was. There were more than 10 lanes for cars, but all of them were full of people with banners. I'd never seen a site like this before, and I knew that the day before, before lots of us Beida students had written our own wills, thinking we might be crushed that day. But that day, the streets were packed full of people. No one was afraid of dying. That day, I stood on the bridge and I cried. The first reason was the Chinese people had really stood up. The other thing was, I felt truly proud. And I felt proud on another level. I thought this movement of ours would change history. You've talked about the loneliness of being a dissident in exile. You've talked about the three types of loneliness. I mean, what do you mean by that? There are three types of loneliness. To begin with, we are exiles in a foreign society. When it comes to language and culture, it's really hard to integrate into the mainstream. The second is, in the U.S. and other countries, there's a very big Chinese community, but we experience a type of loneliness inside the Chinese community as we are opposed to the Communist Party. 
Actually, many people are opposed to the party, but the vast majority won't express this publicly. So we feel very isolated. The feeling is although we are trying to improve things for Chinese people, they avoid us out of fear. The third thing is there's a kind of loneliness within Western society. Although what we are seeking is a just cause, for example, when I was studying at Harvard, the basic principles we studied were seeking justice, democracy, and human rights. But the behavior of the West doesn't really comply with those things that I studied. We haven't really received very staunch support from the West. No one is willing to talk about things like regime change. Everybody is avoiding those topics. But we do hope for a regime change in China. We are a very small minority. So some people do try to seek out spiritual solace. Otherwise, it's really hard to deal with these three levels of loneliness. Do you find that the Western countries are hypocritical? I wouldn't say hypocritical. I'd say pragmatic. Of course, they put their country's interests above universal values. This is extremely realistic. But from historical perspective, this kind of realism is mistaken. If you're too pragmatic, you'll pay a big price. The First World War, the Second World War, these were all like that, but I can't change them. Um, in Xinjiang at the moment, there were very clear human rights violations. This is an even more serious problem. I know there are lots of serious problems, for example, Xinjiang and digital control of the population using high-tech, and I've seen that the Western countries are extremely interested and concerned in this. The issue of Xinjiang should be a matter of concern. But I think the West misunderstands China. Without regime change, without reform to the whole political system, these things will continue to happen. You could pressure China to change its policies in Xinjiang, but without changing the regime itself, the same things will happen in Yunnan or Guangxi. So the thing you should really be concerned about is how to change the core of the system. The West could do this, but I think they're intentionally not touching it. That was student leader Wang Dan. Uh, before that, Zhou Feng So. Thanks also to Joseph Turigian and Bao Pu. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please do leave us a nice review. Our editor is Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danto. Bye for now.